I'm Susan Branscombe, and this is Leading She. And at that point, Jesse Helms, Senator Helms, looked at me and he said, now, wait a second. He said, now, you're the general manager. I said, yes, sir, I am. So he had his wife on one side and Margaret Thatcher on the other. Two women are flanking him. And he looks at his wife and he says, you know, they're putting a lot of these ladies in charge nowadays. And I said, well, yes, they are. And he said, and I do believe that's a good thing. And I said, well, I do, too. And then I moved on down the line and it occurred to me he was standing next to Margaret Thatcher. She had run a country, one could argue an empire, and it had only just occurred to him that women could be in charge. Emily Barr is the president and CEO of Graham Media Group and oversees seven local market media hubs and television stations in six cities, including 1,000 employees. She leads with humanity and humility and empowers her station managers with autonomy. Since the beginning of COVID, Emily has written a weekly memo to the employees with clear guidelines about the company's expectations. Her experience in male-dominated environments started early, and she has some great career stories. Enjoy listening to Emily Barr. Today, my guest on Leading She is Emily Barr. Emily, welcome to Leading She. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you. For almost 10 years, Emily Barr has been the president and chief executive officer of Graham Media Group, the television broadcasting division of Graham Holdings Company. Emily oversees a group of 1,000 employees with seven local media hubs in six markets, including Houston, Detroit, Orlando, San Antonio, Jacksonville, and Roanoke, Virginia. Graham Media goes back to 1944 when the Washington Post, then owned by the Graham family, began broadcasting activities with the purchase of a local radio station. Graham also has a social news desk based out of Atlanta, and uh, Emily will talk about that. Previously, Emily served as the president and general manager of the ABC-owned station in Raleigh-Durham, North Carolina. Prior to Raleigh-Durham, she was president and general manager of the ABC station in Chicago. Before that, she held positions of assistant general manager and director of broadcast operations and programming with a station in Baltimore, Maryland. Emily serves on several boards, including the boards of Associated Press and the Television Bureau of Advertising. Barr was named 2020's Broadcaster of the Year by Broadcasting and Cable and is the 2018 recipient of the Golden Mike Award from the Broadcasters Foundation of America. Under Barr's leadership, Graham Media Group was awarded the 2016 Station Group of the Year by Broadcasting and Cable magazine. A native of Haverville, Massachusetts, Barr is a graduate of Phillips Exeter Academy and holds a B.A. in Film Studies from Carleton College in Northfield, Minnesota. So, Emily, you've had an impressive career in media, and media has changed um, in the last number of years. Um, uh, Local media hubs, uh, TV has changed with the younger generation streaming um, as really competition with uh, with television, give us give us some background, uh, give us some highlights from your career, and talk about talk about media. Sure. So when I started in the business in the uh, late seventies, early eighties, really cable was just becoming um, a factor in watching television. Most people still watched TV over the air, for example. And if you fast forward forty plus years, what you have is um, you have a, a media. Uh, landscape that's really disaggregated 
And a lot of people do watch via streaming services, or they watch on connected televisions, or they just watch on their telephones. So it's, it's a completely different world than when I started. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Give us some highlights of your career. Um, it's a long career. It's successful. Um, a thousand people you, you managed. Uh, talk about that. Talk about your responsibilities. Sure. So I started out in the business uh, as a, a, a news editor uh, in Minneapolis. Uh, what that meant was I was literally editing film and videotape uh, for the nightly news uh, at a TV station in Minneapolis. And I worked my way up through the business um, and, you know, did a lot of different jobs in different television stations before becoming a general manager. And, um, you know, the general manager is essentially responsible for all, all operations of a TV station, the mm-hmm. PL and everything else. And I started in Raleigh-Durham as a general manager, and then I moved to Chicago for 15 years. And then I took this job almost 10 years ago. So I now run these seven we call them media hubs. We don't even refer to them as television stations anymore because so much of what we do involves uh, websites, mobile sites, streaming, um, connected television, that sort of thing. So we are not only um, selling advertising across all of those those mediums, but we're reaching people where they want, you know, when and where they want to be seen. So it isn't, it no longer is required that you come home and watch linear television. Yes. You can really watch on demand. Mm-hmm. And that includes local news. Sure. Um, I mean, you and I are of the same generation, and I think uh, we probably grew up the same way, which is we had a television, you know, and at 6, 6.30 at night, you turned on uh, the local news, and then you got the national news with uh, Walter Cronkite back in the day, right? And mm-hmm. um, things have changed. Things have changed a great deal. Um, and these stations you oversee, they are the local uh, news stations in their markets. And one of your quotes um, I noticed was, if you don't have a strong, vibrant, local free press, you don't have a democracy. And you say, you have no one to keep an eye on City Hall, the school board, the water quality. And these are the things that we all need to live a healthy, productive life. It is really important, money aside, that we have that kind of free press. Absolutely. Could not agree more with myself on that one. <laughs> um, I, 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 look, I think when you look at what's happened in this country just in the last number of years with the um, dissemination of both uh, uh, vetted information and um, basic rumor and innuendo and other information, you can easily confuse and confound the public by putting out there just crazy ideas like the earth is flat or you know something along those lines and it confuses people because they don't they see something for example on facebook or instagram and they view it as as accurate as anything they might see on their local news station so our job locally is to make sure that people are um, both protected celebrated and informed about what's going on in their local communities. And that means when you look at uh, lead in the water in Flint, Michigan, or a massive hurricane in Houston, uh, or uh, the Pulse nightclub shooting in Orlando, you know, these are the kinds of events that really, really impact people locally. And they need to understand what's going on. And I think the 
The most recent example is this horrific situation at Astroworld in Houston that just right. occurred over the weekend mm-hmm. where, you know, uh, eight people died just trying to attend a concert. Right. Um, there's a lot of digging in that our local station in Houston will do into that story to understand how that came to be. Mm-hmm. and who is responsible or who might be to blame and so forth and so on. So that is the role of a local television station in its local market. Mm-hmm. And because of the decline of newspapers, it is my contention that local TV news has become that much more important in helping to cement how a local community understands itself and knows how to move forward in a productive mm-hmm. way. I saw that on the news last night, and it was horrific to watch the crowds, and it reminded me of the Who concert, which was here in Cincinnati uh, many years ago, and it was festival seating, you know, uh, and they stopped festival seating uh, and, and opened the doors early and all of that kind of thing. Does your local news station have a feel for what did happen there? We don't know yet because there's a lot of subterfuge right now and there's a lot of confusion as to whether the police department was prepared, whether the promoters, Live Nation and Travis Scott understood the the size of the crowd. You know, the the initial report was that they had only 50,000 people there and that they had limited the crowd to that size. But if you look at the video, you can see people just streaming through the security gates, you know, with no no one stopping them. Mm-hmm. So it's unclear whether uh, the whole thing was just out of control almost from the beginning. Yeah. And it's just beyond tragic what happened. Yeah, it is. Definitely so. I, I watched uh, on a lighter note, I, I watched a video of some of your employees uh, who were interviewed about you. And I was really impressed with how real this was. It wasn't like I need to say good things about my boss. These people really like working for you. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, one of the quotes is, and, uh, um, is, Emily Barr is humanity and humility rolled into one. She is a smart and innovative leader. At her core, she cares about each one of us. She inspires and motivates us by setting a course for the direction we need to go and allows us to do the things we need to do in our local market. She empowers us to be the leaders we need to be in the markets we serve. So I was just impressed with how how real, like I say, everyone was. And talk about your leadership style. You're over these uh, local media hubs in these various markets, and all of these markets have their own culture. You know, Houston's different than Roanoke, different than Jacksonville. So talk about your leadership style, and you give them a lot of autonomy, the station managers, right, to, to run their run their own show. I do. And and let me just start by saying I'm really fortunate because I work with some really fantastic and talented people and they make my job a lot easier. Um, You know, I'm a big believer that you should hire people who are smarter than you are and then get out of their way so they can do what Mm -hmm. they need to do. Um, I don't think I'm the first one to say that, but but I do believe in it. Um, Look, I think at the end of the day, when you run a local business, whether it's a local bank, it's a local deli, local television station, you're the one closest to the customers. You're the one who understands inherently what it is people are looking for and what their needs are. And if you're going to be successful, you're going to serve those needs at the local level. And um, the more you empower someone to do that, and the more you give them the right to to make the decisions that they need to make, um, then I think the better off you're going to be. It's it's never been truer than it is for, for local television. Because to your point earlier, 
Houston does not operate the same way or does not function the same way as Jacksonville or Roanoke or Detroit. And each one has its own unique um, personality. So it's really important that the people running those stations individually really embed themselves in those communities, understand what's important to those communities, what what is of value to the people who live there. And, um, and I can't do that sitting in Chicago. I need that to be done you know, by the individuals on the ground. Mm-hmm. So I'm there to guide and to give advice and to occasionally create guardrails. But beyond that, they, they do the work. Yeah, the guardrails, that's interesting. Most of the leaders I've talked to in this podcast, the women who are executives, uh, do the, the really good ones, like, like you're talking about, is give, give the station managers a latitude, empower them. They're smart. Let them do their thing. But there are times when you've got to make a tough call, right, that mm-hmm. you have to put guardrails in and just say, that's not what we're about. That's not according to our values. We can't do that, right? Tell me about that's that. That's correct. Well, I think the most recent example would be how we've handled the um, response to COVID, which we needed a more um, universal response because COVID was you know, not discriminating based on markets. So you couldn't sit there and say, well, Houston, you can handle it differently than Orlando, because in fact, uh, COVID knows no geographic bounds and you know, the problem could exist anywhere. So we did set some broad parameters with respect to you know, our expectation that all of our employees be vaccinated, for example. Yes. And I'm very proud of the fact that um, our deadline... Um, for getting all employees fully vaccinated is November 15th of this year. Um, We are currently sitting at 99% vaccinated. Mm. Um, So we do have a small number of people who have stubbornly, uh, despite all of our best efforts, remained unvaccinated. They either will get, uh, they're very, very few, I mean, like less than a handful, who will get an exemption either for uh, health or religious reasons, and they're temporary exemptions, uh, or they will leave the company. Um, So you know, it's not my druthers. I'd rather not have anyone leave the company, but we made it very, very clear to everyone involved that that's how we were going to handle COVID. Mm. And I've been communicating weekly with the entire staff of the company since the beginning of COVID. So since March of 20, I've put out a weekly memo or also done Zoom calls with everybody involved just to let them know where things stand and you know yeah. try to allay the fears that we all have. I was going to ask you about that next. Your weekly newsletter after COVID began, um, that is revolutionary. And I don't know that anybody else is doing that. What kind of things did you put in the newsletter? What did people hear from you? Well, you know, it's it's not even a newsletter. It's just a memo. I just memo. write it myself. Okay. I write it myself every week. Um, I do, you know, I always run it by a couple of people who work with me because they're good editors. So I've never tried to assume that I can do all the writing. Um, some weeks it is very celebratory. Some weeks it's very reflective. Uh, some weeks it's very specific about things we're going to do, like we're going to go back to wearing masks again, or um, we're going to limit how many people come into the building. Um, I've tried to answer questions uh, as they come up so that if people do have questions, they know they can write back to me. Um, I do get emails back from employees. Mm-hmm. I can always tell when one of my memos has struck a chord because I might get you know, anywhere from 20 to 30 responses, which is a lot when you think about most people don't want to write the CEO an, an email. Right. And uh, But I appreciate when they do, and I always write them back. Um, I think it's one of these uh, situations where um, 
you just have to make sure that people are really informed and really clear on what your expectations are. And because the pandemic is, is a new thing and none of us had a playbook, it just felt appropriate to me that we make sure that people, um, knew every week what we were thinking, Mm -hmm. even if I didn't have an answer. Well, and it speaks speaks to your open leadership style in that 20, 30 people a week when you strike a chord uh, feel comfortable writing to you. I mean, how many companies where it's like the chairman or the president writes to the people and it's crickets, you know, who wants to disagree or who wants to make a different point, you know, know, at the peril of your uh, career, you know, so that's that's really impressive. Thank you. Uh, talk about uh, your background, your parents. Uh, your dad was a shoe manufacturer, I understand, mother, siblings. Uh, my father was a shoe manufacturer in uh, southern New Hampshire, where I grew up in. Uh, I grew up in Massachusetts, just on the border of New Hampshire. And my mom was a kindergarten teacher. Hmm. So I spent a lot of my childhood helping her build um, little things for the kids to take home. Um, hmm. I made many a Christmas uh, 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 paperweight and uh, <laughs> yeah. things of that nature. Um, but uh, yeah, my I grew up in a family of five children, and I'm the middle of the five. Okay. And uh, and, um, you know, pretty typical, you know, my dad, I worked in his factory a couple of summers and, mm-hmm. um, and, uh, you know, did different work there and learned a lot about what it's like to, you know, get up very early and yeah. go to a factory. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> yep. You went to a, uh, I thought this was interesting. Uh, you went to a, a boarding school, which at the time before you got there, uh, had just recently integrated women. Uh, it was all male before that, uh, which really, as I reflected upon this, it was really your first experience with sort of a male-dominated environment, right? I mean, that's yeah. early. For me, it was my career, uh, but but you got uh, inducted early into male-dominated uh, environments with the boarding school. So talk about what your experience there Yes, I went to Phillips Exeter, which is a pretty well-known boarding school in the United States, and uh, and I was uh, probably in the second or third class of girls, um, so there were only a handful of us compared to the total number of students. Uh, the school was still adjusting to the idea of co-education, so we had a lot of funny little situations. For example, we had uh, urinals were still in our bathrooms <laughs> because they hadn't bothered to take them out yet. I think they were waiting to see if girls could actually handle the school. Um, we did a lot of co-ed sports because we didn't have enough girls to play. So for example, I, I don't know why, but I took ice hockey as a, as a yeah. winter sport and I had to play co-ed uh, club level ice hockey. None of us could skate. So it was just a, a scrum <laughs> of people falling on the ice. But um, I remember my father saying to me, please buy the equipment used because he knew I would never actually be an ice hockey player. <laughs> um, but I, I did learn a lot about what it's like to be around um frankly, very privileged young men hmm. who really are told when you go to a school like Exeter, you're, you're told from the time you walk in there that you will be the leaders of tomorrow and that you will, you will, you will probably run the nation because that's the kind of people that go there. And it's pretty heady stuff for a 16-year-old. But when you're female and you're in an environment where pretty much everyone in your class is male and the teachers sometimes forget you're there, Right. Because they they just say, boys, you can do this or you can do that. And you're like, um, hello, I'm I'm right. here, too. Uh, so I think it's it was an interesting experience. And it taught me a lot about working with um, men or mm-hmm. young men at the mm-hmm. time 
and learning how they operate and how they engage, whether it's on the athletic field or in the classroom or whatever. Um, and I think the thing I noticed the most was how confident they were. Yeah, yeah. Um, you, One of the things you said in uh, our preparation for this is that you see men often as so overly confident and they have confidence, which sometimes far exceeds their ability. <laughs> I thought that was really good. Um, and I don't want to, you know, we don't want to mail bash here, but it, it's true. I mean, uh, they are given messages, like you say, it's assumed that for a white man in our in our country that is pushed to exceed, pushed to lead, that we assume they're smart, ambitious, uh, but yet we're left sort of not being acknowledged and we have to prove that we are ambitious and smart, right? Yeah. And I, I think that um, the assumption on the part of some men, not all men, but on the assumption, um, really, you could see it when I was at Exeter from the beginning of their young lives is that you will, you will succeed, you know, mm -hmm. as in the old Dr. Seuss line, yes, you will indeed, you know? And um, I think for women, the assumption is I've got to put my head down I've got to do a lot of work and hopefully at some point I'll figure it out and no one will find out I'm an imposter and uh, that I really don't know what I'm doing. So I think inherently there is this level of confidence that men enter the workforce with that comes not just from being a, a man, but it's, it's from their childhood. Mm -hmm. It's from the teacher calling on them when they're very young and acknowledging them perhaps more so than they might the young girl who's sitting next to them. Mm -hmm. So you have to work a lot harder and be more, probably a little more aggressive as a young woman and understand that you too can have confidence. Uh, you don't need to be obnoxious about it, but you really should express that level of confidence. Right. And yeah. And not dumb, dumb yourself down or any of that, that right. kind of thing. Because when we grew up, it was, um, you know, you're going, you know, I the message I got was, well, you know, you can do secretarial BOE, which is business office education. You can be a nurse. You can be a teacher. Those were sort of like the typical careers for young women. And then I realized right. that I wanted to get into business and I wanted to succeed in business. And yet when I came into the workforce in 1980, it still was it was still pretty, pretty backward. And, and uh, I had to. I had to sort of really prove myself and prove that I was ambitious and I wanted to I wanted to be successful and and it took a while for people to believe it. Yep. Yeah. Exactly right. Yeah. Exactly right. Um you say that in your company we have a lot of women at the top of Graham Media Group and I am really proud of that but we need more diversity in terms of culture, race and geography. We need to reflect the growing diversity of our communities. And uh, we talked about gender bias. I'd like to talk a little more about that. But um, talk about talk about being um, a person of color, women of color. What what do you think our country and our communities need, and and companies need to really focus on to make sure that we are uh, we are hiring and retaining uh, based you know with with diversity within our communities. What do you think the keys are? Well, I look back to my own career and I think about when I was first hired as a general manager in Raleigh uh, in 1994, my boss at the time was literally ordered, ordered by then Bob Iger, who was the, gen he was the head of ABC at the time. You know, he went on to run Disney. Mm -hmm. Bob said to my boss, 
you it's high time you hired a woman to run a TV station. You can't tell me there's no one out there. And my boss's response at the time, he was an older gentleman, great guy, but he was his response was, I would, but I don't know any. So the the challenge here is that we all live in our own little bubbles. Yes. And you know, for us to to act like that today about women of color or men of color is ridiculous. Of course, there are incredibly talented, qualified people out there to do any manner of jobs. But we have to get outside, we and I include myself in this, have to get outside our own little bubbles and find people and meet people and understand that just because we haven't encountered them along the way yet doesn't make them less qualified. Mm -hmm. When I met this gentleman who I ultimately worked for twice at ABC, the first thing he said to me was, I've never heard of you. And I said to him, well, guess what? I've never heard of you either. So there you go. We, <laughs> we were both in the industry and I didn't know who he was. Honestly, I didn't. He was quite well known, but I didn't know who he was. And he didn't know who I was. So we were just missing each other. And I do think that's a lot of what's going on today. Um, we also assume that people of color should act just like we do. Just like when you and I were coming up, the assumption was we would act just like the men that we wanted to compete against. But in fact, we bring a whole other set of qualifications and perspective that has made it more valuable for us to now be in this place we're in. So the example I would give is today, one of the most treasured attributes of a leader is empathy. Hmm. Everyone writes about empathy, particularly, you know, when you look at the last two years. Well, women have a, I don't, I don't say all women have empathy, but they have a natural tendency towards empathy. And it's a characteristic that 20, 30, 40 years ago was probably viewed as a negative. Right. You know, it was you're command, too nice. command and control, you know, right. don't be right. too soft. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So I believe that if we expand our perspective, if we expand our, our view of people and we bring in more people who represent the growing diversity of this country, and we are a growingly diverse country, then um, I think then we're going to find there are other attributes that we've never acknowledged that are important in the way we run companies. And um, so, you know, in my view, uh, it's just imperative that we find uh, really, really good individuals who represent as broad a cross-section as we can. Mm -hmm. And I would even open that up to people who think differently, whether it's someone who's neuroatypical, uh, might have a different way of looking at things. You know, we all recognize, for example, today that there are people who are, you know, on the upper end of the autism spectrum who are brilliant, brilliant. I yes. mean, Bill Gates, brilliant, mm -hmm. right? Um, Albert Einstein supposedly was, but we've always viewed them as having a quote disability. They don't have a disability. They just think differently. But that yeah. difference of thinking is important. It is. And and science has proven with diversity on teams uh, makes for better uh, companies and, and more profitable. Uh, but I think you're right. It's not hiring your buddy or your friend's buddy to join the company, but opening it up to other people. And you may not understand completely their culture. You may not understand where they come from. Um, but you know, really giving people a chance. And once they get there, making sure they feel like they belong. Exactly. Because it's not enough to hire them. You have to make sure that you're really valuing their input, that you're viewing their perspective as something that's going to enhance what it is you do. Mm -hmm. And if you don't do that, you could lose them. You yes. could bring them in and then they could leave in a, you know, in a year. Right. 
You told me a few really good stories um, that um, uh, in one of your first uh, big jobs at Raleigh-Durham, uh, you were the new general manager of the station, and you were like me. Um, I had a lot of responsibility early in my career. Um, I was ambitious and smart like you. Uh, I was a young woman. I'm also short. And uh, you say that uh, <laughs> your secret weapon is to constantly being underestimated. Talk about your experience there. And I think you had a good story uh, involving the chief of police there. Yes, I, I had gotten to Raleigh and I was uh, uh, 30. I was just around 35 or 36 years of age. And I look young, or at the time I looked young, I have gray hair now, but I, I um, uh, was in Raleigh and, and the, the mayor of Raleigh, which is a part-time more ceremonial position, uh, decided to have a little reception for me at the, uh, you know, at the uh, city hall. And so there were a number of people there just to meet me. It was very nice. We were in Durham, which is where the station was located. So I went over and, you know, it was very casual and this tall guy uh, comes over to me in a suit and I, we all had name tags on. And he said, could you, I said, I introduced myself. I said, I'm Emily Barr. It's so nice to meet you. Thrilled to be here. And he said, oh, it's great to meet you too. Uh, you work at the station. I said, oh yes, I do. I'm brand new. And he said, oh, that's great. Could you do me a favor and introduce me to that new lady who's the general manager of the station? I said, I can because it's me. He said, no, that's great. But I need to meet the woman who's running the television station. I said, I know. And that would be me. And he and I said my name or something along those lines. And for the third time, he asked me again, I know, but I need to meet the woman who's in charge. And finally, I said, look, my name's Emily Barr. I'm the president and general manager of WTVD. I'm brand new here. I just moved here. I think you want to meet me. And I had to be very specific. And he started laughing because he apologized and said, I'm sorry, you just don't look like yeah. what I was expecting. Yeah. I said, that's okay. What do you do, by the way? <laughs> because he didn't have a uniform on. He said, I'm the chief of police. I said, oh, I'm not going to mess with you. So, you know, we 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 got along just fine after that. But that's a good example of people underestimating you based on your appearance in that case. Mm -hmm. um, that's OK. You were a young, short woman. Right. And yeah. it's yeah. just not who he pictured, you know, and there you go. I mean, it's like we have a, a bias against who somebody should look like, um, you know, in that role. And you didn't yep. fit. I didn't fit. And so those are those are sort of biases that we have to continually overcome in our careers. And, and that's a message, exactly. I think, for young women. Um, another great story you have from down there uh, involved uh, Margaret Thatcher and uh, the previous prime minister, of course, of the UK, who served in the 80s, uh, termed the Iron Lady and Jesse Helms. Tell that yeah. story. So that's a, it's a very funny story. It's one I tell all the time. I was at a luncheon at Elon College over in Greensboro, um, and with me was our uh, business manager, who was a gentleman in his 60s at the time. And we were invited for various reasons to this luncheon, which was hosted by Jesse Helms. Margaret Thatcher was long out of office at this point. So we went, and after the, the speech she gave, we went to a little garden party, and there were maybe 60 of us at the lunch. And so there was a receiving line and I walked into the line to meet everyone. And as I shook hands with um, Senator Helms, who, by the way, used to work in television, so he understood our business, oh. my business manager came up. But, you know, I said my name. I said, I'm Emily Barr from WTVD. And he said, nice to meet you. He didn't even hear me. And then my business manager came up behind me and, and 
ended his introduction by saying, and Emily here is my boss. And at that point, Jesse Helms, Senator Helms looked at me and he said, now, wait a second. He said, now you're the general manager. I said, yes, sir. And he said, of the whole thing. I said, yes, sir, I am. And he looked at his wife. So he had his wife on one side and Margaret Thatcher on the other. This is important. Two women are flanking him. And he looks at his wife and he says, you know, they're putting a lot of these ladies in charge nowadays. And I was just like, oh, my God, uh, what do I say to that? And I said, well, yes, they are. And he said, and I do believe that's a good thing. And I said, well, I do too. And then I moved on down the line and it occurred to me, he was standing next to Margaret Thatcher. She had run a country, one could argue an empire. And it had only just occurred to him that women could be in charge, although he didn't think of Margaret Thatcher as a woman. I'm sure he thought of her as the Iron Lady. Um, I just thought it was incredible that he could look at me and think they're putting a lot of women in charge. Yeah, yeah. This was, you know, Yeah, look at these these girls coming in, doing, trying to do what we do, right? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Um, We've all, I love that story. Um, We've all had times when We've missed something. We made a mistake. We've learned. We've had a failure. Yours, yours involves Oprah. Uh, mm-hmm. Talk, talk about that that story. Um, many years ago, when I was what's called a creative services director uh, in charge of putting the the advertising and promotional spots on the air for a TV station down in Houston, Oprah was just getting started with her syndicated show. So she had been in Chicago, but had not done a program nationally. And she came in to the market and we had a great visit with her. And after she left, I came up with an idea that I thought was you know, brilliant because I was young and I knew everything then <laughs> um, and to promote her. And I, I forget exactly how it went, but it was something that kind of poked fun at her name, Oprah. Mm-hmm. And we put this fairly expensive you know, we, we, we shot it on film and we made a big production out of it. And when the spots were all done, I showed them to my boss, the general manager. He liked them. Um, and he was so proud of them. He said, let's send them to Oprah and her people. And we did. And then he called me a few days later and said, um, don't run the spots. And I said, what? And he said, you can't run them. Uh, Oprah hates them because you're making fun of her and her name. And she's very proud of her name. And you missed the whole point of why people should know who she is and you know what they should know about her. And of course, he'd gotten his ear chewed off by probably one of Oprah's people. Um, and I, I did miss it. I had not fully understood why somebody, now this is a good example of diversity, right? Why somebody whose name, I'd never heard the name Oprah before, right? It was no. a name I'd never heard of. None of us and had. And I thought, none of us had. And I thought it was, was, uh, uh, something we could have fun with. Yeah. And I was trying to be, teaser. Yeah. But not in a bad way, like yeah. not in a mean way, but she took it as mean. So we never ran the spots. They, they went in the trash heap of, you know, uh, creative services detrius that it was. And, um, and I was always afraid that Oprah would find out that it was me that put these together. Um, I mean, I don't think she would even remember today. I later got to know Oprah a little bit when I was in Chicago and, you know, we had a nice relationship and would talk every now and again. Um, I never actually told her that I was the one that did those spots, but I guess if she hears this, she'll figure it out now. But <laughs> I'm not um, sure. You know, Oprah, some t- <laughs> I'm not sure Oprah listens to my podcast. Well, you but never know. One can hope. <laughs> yeah, but you know, I'll tell you something. I learned a lot from that because it was a good lesson for yes. me. It was uh, humbling, um, maybe a little humiliating, but I think for me, it was a very good lesson. In okay, you missed the mark. You didn't 
do this right, stop what you're doing, rethink it, come up with something else. And as much as it seemed like a crisis at the time, like it was a horrible, awful thing that was going to somehow upend my entire career, it's just a good thing to learn from. Yeah, but don't you think, too, that if you had to do it over again, and I've learned this over the years, that even though I think I've got this great idea and I go out with it, that maybe I should have talked to a few people before. Oh, yeah. That's what I've learned that the hard way, you know. Yes. Bounce it off my husband or people in the office. What do you think about this? I'm thinking about doing this, right? Right. And that's exactly why when I write my weekly memos, I always run them by a couple of people. Oh, that's yeah, that's a good idea. I've learned I've learned the hard way, even though even though you think this is a great thing to say, you know, somebody will say, you know, when they hear that, they might think this or that. Right. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You have uh, received some great advice and it was some time ago. Talk about the best advice you received. So, so uh, very early in my career, uh, I was hired to be a writer, a producer in Washington, D.C., and uh, I was hired by a woman, uh, which was great. Uh, but we didn't get along all that well, and I was not um, – I didn't feel like she had anything to teach me. I was very full of myself at you know the young age of 25, and As it turned out, six months after I arrived at this television station, she took a new job. So the day she left, she asked me out to lunch so she could give me kind of a six-month review since she knew she was leaving. And, you know, she was very complimentary about my work. And she said, you know, you're a good writer and you understand how to get things done and people like you. uh, But you have one major flaw that you need to work on. And I was like, okay, yeah, whatever, you know, and, and I'm sitting at lunch, not thinking she could give me any advice at all, but she did give me the best advice I ever got. And she said, you know, when you are told to do something or asked to do something and you don't agree with it, or you don't think the person asking you knows what they're talking about, you need to learn how to wipe that F you expression off your face. (laughs) And I, I sat back and I thought, Oh boy, you know, she's right. Cause I'm one of those people that wears it on my sleeve. Mm-hmm. And, and I saw her a number of years later, we ran into each other somewhere and, you know, we were both older and wiser. And I said, you gave me the best advice I ever got. And she said, I did, you know, like, I don't remember. And I told her, she said, I can't believe I said that to you. I said, oh, you said it. Yeah. <laughs> and I yeah. listened. So it was good advice. Good advice. So how do you do that today? How do you make sure you, you kind of keep a poker face on if you don't, if you don't want to show how you're feeling about something. Um, you should bite my lip, you know? Um, <laughs> no, I mean, I try not to, I'm expressive. So yeah. I try not to look like I'm being um, negative in my, you know, if I don't like, if I don't agree or I don't like what somebody is saying, I try to, to the extent that I can, maintain some level of a poker face. Yes, it's, uh, it, it, it's an art. <laughs> it is an art. I've had to do the same thing, and uh, it's important to uh, you know keep your maybe reaction uh, to yourself. And sometimes I think I'm doing that, and, and I'm not. You know, people tell me that. Um, how have you uh, you you say that you've used humor and sarcasm in your career? How have you used that? in your career leadership oh. <laughs> successful. <laughs> I use it all the time, by the way. <laughs> yeah, no, I, so do I. I. I think humor is a great um, uh, icebreaker. And, you know, you can't be mean spirited with humor. You need to be careful not to be using humor at someone else's expense. Mm-hmm. But you can certainly use it to some extent at your own expense. You know, I try to be, um, I try to represent myself as, as 
being as look, we're all anyone who leads a group is not completely humble. I mean, they may think they are, but they're not because we all have ego. Uh, but I do try to put things in perspective. You know, I always say to people, we what we do is important. We help inform and 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 protect and celebrate people. But we're not curing cancer here. We're not, you know, we're not. Uh, we might be saving the world for democracy. I'm not sure, um, but we're we're certainly not doing some of the more noble things that you see, uh, perhaps a, a public servant or a doctor or something like that. On the other hand, you know, journalists in their purest form really can make a difference in people's lives for the better. So while I don't consider myself to be a journalist uh, because I wasn't trained to be a journalist, I do. Uh, I do value and appreciate really good journalism, mm-hmm. and I know that it can have a huge impact on the lives of the people that live in any community. Mm-hmm. So I just try to use humor to not only break the ice, but to, um, you know, relieve tension. Yes. Um, to let people see that I'm a real person, that anyone can make a mistake, anyone can inadvertently say the wrong thing, mm-hmm. and that we should be judged on the totality of what we do, not on one single mm-hmm. episode. Yeah, I've used humor a lot in my career, and uh, I've learned that I've made the mistake of teasing people. Uh, in mm-hmm. the past, I grew up in a sort of a teasing family, um, and and it can be it can be hurtful. And I I've learned not to not to do that uh, any longer. Agreed. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah. Yep. Um, just a couple more questions as we close out. What what do you think? the future of of media is should be in in our world you know politically uh, globally you know you look at uh, where we got our news uh, 40 years ago you know it was the newspaper and the nightly news you know yep. maybe radio uh, mm-hmm. uh, and the local news station but today I mean you could you know you've got your phone you've got Twitter Instagram Facebook you've got uh, all of the social the streaming uh, news stations you get the local news what where do you see this going what what responsibility does media have here well one thing I would say is that I think social media, needs to be uh, reined in just a little bit. I'm not suggesting we put, uh, you know, all kinds of uh, uh, tamping down on it. But I do think that uh, just like when television first began, you know, there was a there was a code that was set up that said, you know, you're, you, you have to do certain things, you have to serve the community a certain way. The problem with social media is that it is not in and of itself media. It is a platform on which media sits. Mm. So it's a misnomer to call it social media. What has happened with with what we know as social media, whether it's Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, whatever, is that everyone's voice is at the same volume. Yes. So you have individuals who use it to their own end and who are going to try and um, confuse or confound people with misinformation. We've seen that throughout the last number of years. And it's just getting worse and worse. So I would hope that as the FCC continues to examine how social media could be or should be constrained to some extent, that they will put some reins or some guardrails, as I used before, the term Mm -hmm. guardrails, I would hope they would use that to um, 
you know, to do the same because I, I, and I've testified to before Congress several times on this subject because I feel really strongly about it. I think it is very difficult for us to play in the same sandbox with these guys when they uh, are essentially sourced by 40% or more people as a, you know, if you ask 40% of the public, where do you get your news? They'll say Facebook, but they're not getting their news from Facebook. They're getting their news from individuals or companies or whoever on Facebook who put out information and no one's checking the source of that information. Right. So you could find, for example, made up sites, you know, the American News Network, which is not a real network, Mm -hmm. but nobody knows that. Right. It looks like a network. Yeah. Right. Yeah, it it does. And and, and these uh, messages that come out, uh, come come out from anyone, and then you hear people talk. And I don't, we're not going to get into political things, but it's just like you, st- they state these things because they saw it on Facebook. They believe it's real, and right. it's not a fact, you know. And 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 it becomes the you know it's it's a wag the dog scenario because what happens is uh, politicians will sometimes themselves pick up on things that have been put out there, and then they retweet it or repost it. And they don't even know if it's true. And mm. every one of us has been caught reposting or retweeting something and then realizing later, oh, that wasn't actually true. That was mm. just somebody who made it up and it got it kept going down the line. Yeah. And because my friend posted it, I trust my friend. Yes. But we don't know that my friend really vets things. So I do worry about that. I, I do think that um, worldwide, we have a huge issue. Because, you know, it also, by the way, social media can be a great force for good as well. You know, it has helped burgeoning democracies get the word out in other parts of the world. uh, But then it goes, it flips over to the other side. And, and, you know, you look at what's going on in the Philippines and you can see the challenges they're having there, just as a for instance. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there is some, there is good that comes out of it. But yeah, it's uh, it's the Wild West out there. Right. yeah, just last question for you. Um, I know you've had a long marriage, uh, and yes. uh, Scott Kane, I believe his name is. That's correct. Um, and you have two daughters, and I was just curious, uh, strong, successful woman like you, what are your daughters doing now, and how do you think you might have influenced them? You know, um, we're really proud of our kids. They're both forging their own paths, which is great. They're in their young 20s, so it remains to be seen what their careers will be. But I have one child who is um, studying to be a luthier. A luthier is someone who makes guitars and other stringed instruments, Mm. um, which is a pretty cool thing and a very creative kid and uh, not a kid, young woman um, and, um, uh, you know, a maker. So she sews and knits and looms and needlepoints and all that. And she's really impressive. And uh, and our other daughter is a senior in college, and uh, we'll see where she lands, you know, after after college. But she's having a, a great time of it in college and uh, double majoring and um, proud of both of them. Um, I think we've raised them to be strong, independent young women um, who know themselves and who um, have some confidence and understand the difference between right and wrong. So uh, no complaints. Fantastic. Yeah. Well, Emily, it's been great to get to know you. I, be, I feel privileged to get to know uh, you. Thank you. It's great yes. to know know you. And thanks for doing this podcast. It's wonderful yeah. uh, to have a venue like this, you know, yeah. for women to talk about what 
what it's like to be out there today. Yeah, I've enjoyed it. Uh, I think you may be my 51st guest. Wow. So congratulations. I've done this for three years and I love it. I love the work and uh, hopefully uh, young women uh, and men and uh, people in their mid-careers get something out of it. And I, I think they do. This has been great. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Susan, and appreciate all of it and uh, enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to this episode of Leading She. Please check out many other Leading She episodes, which are wonderful. We discuss challenges these accomplished women have overcome in their careers. Please subscribe to this podcast and rate it and review it. Follow Leading She on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. And visit our website, leadingshe.com, where we have ideas and wisdom for women leaders. 